From one lover to another. Uh-huh. We sound great. We do. Are you ready to have some fun with the wretched? <laughs> you ready to have some fun with the wretched, Vanessa? Freddy, Freddy, Freddy. Freddy got fingered. Isn't that a, is that a ba- is that was that a real band? No, it was a movie. Hola, bienvenidos. I'm your host, Vico, and I am Obi, and we are those two Mexicans. Welcome. Welcome back. If you listened to our first episode and you decided to stick around, we are happy to have you. Aquí vamos a comenzar. Con esa voz. <laughs> we already did that. You already did that. <laughs> Don't be repeating yourself. Yeah. So how do you how do you feel about um, our I first feel, episode? I feel good. We got a lot of feedback from friends that listen and they really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. Hopefully we'll be able to continue with the good content. I think we got some really good information and we got a lot of great information coming up. So I'm really excited to get started on that. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, it is. Are you ready to have some fun with the wretched? (laughs) (laughs) You ready to have some fun with the wretched, Vanessa? (laughs) So what's going on with your life? (sighs) Not much. You know, just uh, how the kids say, chillaxing. Okay, the kids in 2004. Oh, is that 2004? Or something like that. Oh. No, I'm good. Um, not really, you know. Did you subject me to the end-all, be-all werewolf movie of all time? I re- I enjoyed it, actually. I'm I thought it was really good. I'm you, glad one of us did. You can get it on Amazon Prime, and I think it's on Shudder as well. The wolf, Yeah, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And he recommends it. I did not enjoy the movie. I have let's, seen... Let's talk about it. If you're going to go with the end-all, be-all werewolf movie, Uh I recommend the classic. Oh, my God. Here we go. That one weird one with Angela, with Mrs. Teapot. Neil Jordan, before he did... Is it Neil Jordan or Neil Gaiman? No, Neil Jordan. Oh, I get them confused. It was before uh, Interview with a Vampire movie in 84, 83, 84... He directed okay, first the of classic. All, first of all, Interview with the Vampire was Neil Jordan, dumbass. That's what I'm talking about. You said Neil Gaiman. I did not say Neil Gaiman. I said Neil Jordan. Oh, I said Neil Gaiman. Yes, you did. Oh, okay. Continue. And I am recommending A Company of Wolves. Yeah, that's a weird movie. It's a great movie. It's an underappreciated, underrated, awesome movie. Why? And you're recommending this what? What is it called? The Wolf of Shallow Hollow? Uh, so you don't even remember the title? Oh, of let it. me look it up. Hold on. It's the Wolf of Snow Hollow. The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Whatever. It's the same thing. It was campy. It was dumb. It was. It wasn't campy enough. It tried to be. It it kind of tried to have like a. It tried to be witty. It tried to be funny. Mm. And I I just wasn't having it. It just wasn't my thing. It wasn't my cup of tea. Nothing is really ever your cup of tea. Yes. I you always have to be with the fucking analytics. Of- what? I don't know. Have to, oh, you always have to analyze everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking of what we Anal? like and don't like. <laughs> anyway, speaking of oh my movie, God, why are you all mix, mix fucking Dear Prudence over here? Dear Prudence. Close your eyes, close your eyes, close your eyes. So anyway, I just got back from urgent care. Oh, yeah. So our cat fucked him up. My little kitty cat. My old one. We have an old 12, 13. She's 13 now. 13. A 13-year-old cat has is not having it. We 
brought home two little kittens this summer. An all-black boy. His name is Gannon. And a little black and white tuxedo cat. His name is Epona. And yes, they're named after the they're Legend named of Zelda. After Legend of Zelda. For all you video for all you gamers. gamers from 2010. No, from like 1981. <laughs> so anyway, she's just not having it. They're always she's always trying to attack them. So the other day, they were he she had cornered one of them, and I stepped in to rescue him, and she just. And bit my arm or my hand. Yeah, and she done good. It really, but I, I, she's in all the thirteen years we've had her, she's never bitten me this hard. Yeah, and it got infected, so now my hand is swollen. It's really swollen. So, and because of my condition, I have to take all kinds of medication, but mm. I should be okay. I've just been not to get too political. Um, I watched the town halls. Um, they were a mess. Well, I mean. A they, certain individual. Both, they were both a mess. A certain individual was a little more messy. We're not going to get into too much politics, but um, you see the color of my orange drink. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> go out and vote because um, yeah, we just don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, the world's fucking bonkers right now. Yeah, but let's 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 Anyways, not bring yeah. everyone down. Let's, let's talk let's about the important things like movies. Yeah, let's talk about movies. Let's talk about our next school for the children. <laughs> so I can't wait because I, I I I really did my research, and we're gonna do it a little different this time. Are we? Yeah, I thought we the last one was good. I think, but we could do better. I'm gonna blow your mind. <laughs> uh, Mariah Carey vinyl is not research. Okay. Relax with the Mariah Carey. That's a different episode. That Yay, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be informative. And you are going to be a lamb by the time we're done with that episode. A lamb to the slaughter? <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. Speaking of slaughter films... <laughs> um. <laughs> I hope we have enough content to. Uh, oh, we got way a lot of content to roll with this and make something. If you don't, I have plenty. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's get into it. These are the movies that we grew up with for the most part. Well, the English version, the English ones. We're gonna brief. Well, I decided well, that true. I'm gonna talk about. You're gonna talk over me. Yes, uh, less of the more iconic movies, and I'm just gonna really. Okay, less iconic, like you're talking about, like Nightmare on Elm Street, like all of those Freddy, that everybody knows. 13th, or Fri- Freddy, thir- Friday the 13th. Yeah. I said, <laughs> I said Freddy the 13th. Oh, yeah. Well, Freddy. Oh, yeah, no. That's different. <laughs> you're so- what the fuck? <laughs> oh, God. Freddy, Freddy, Freddy. Freddy got fingered. Freddy got fingered. Isn't that a, is that a ba- is that, was that a real band? No, it was a movie. It was? Yes, it was like a Jim Carrey or somebody like that. No, it wasn't it Tom Green? Or something like that, yeah. Okay, so here we go. Join us. Love or us. Or hate us. Send us. Throw money at us. But tune in. Tune out. Get crazy. Okay, Prince. So I just want to start by saying that there was a lot of information to cover. And I was not able to talk about all the different subgenres that developed from the 80s until now. But I didn't manage to talk about, or I will manage to talk about most of the defining moments in horror history. 
Some say that 80s horror began with Ridley Scott's 1979 sci-fi horror movie, Alien. This was a time when technical advances in special effects finally caught up with the imaginings of both horror fans and movie makers. Advances in animatronic and liquid latex made it possible for the human body to be contorted into any gory scenario. The 80s was also the age of excess when having it all was still the ultimate goal. Horror found itself, and the 90s was when it established itself in the pantheon of other big studio genres. Horror films have always dealt with taboos surrounding death, and in the 80s, they began to deal with evisceration, the pulling apart of the human body and turning it inside out with all its slimy viscera on display. As the tagline for Reanimator intoned, death is just the beginning, and viewers of 1980s horror films got shown many of the processes which occur peri and post-mortem. Special effects creators fell over each other to create sequences that had never been attempted on film before. There would be no more monsters with zippers up their backs. Instead, the focus was on unzipping abdomens and torsos, spilling their contents onto the floor. In his first big studio feature for Universal, David Cronenberg uses body horror as a sharp tool to poke at the media landscape of the early 1980s. Thanks to a trio of recent technology developments, that is cable TV, the video cassette recorder, and the remote control, it was now possible for the hooked up viewer to spend literally hours of each day hopping from TV channel to TV channel, watching a few seconds before moving on in search of more enthralling entertainment. This rendered the TV viewer more passive, more compliant than ever before. No need to focus or follow a thought, just sit back, slack-jawed while random images unfurled themselves straight into your brain. I think the advance of special effects makeup also made it possible at this time to remake some of the horror classics with a gory update. One big film that did that was Cronenberg's The Fly, John Carpenter's The Thing, and Chuck Russell's The Blob. The 80s also introduced audiences to the home video, a subject Cronenberg explored in his film Videodrome. Studios took advantage of this new VCR trend by duplicating the same formula that began in the 40s with Val Luton. Low-budget films had a new life on home video and they became known as video nasties in the UK because they were uncensored. These films such as The Boogeyman, Evil Dead, Happy Birthday to Me, and the Don't Go films. These are Don't Go Into the House, Don't Go in the Woods, and Don't Go Near the Park all fell under censorship in the United States and across other countries, but they could be found in their uncensored glory on home video. By the end of the 80s, these slasher films had run their course. Movies such as Friday the 13th and all its sequels by this time were starting to bore audiences, and Nightmare on Elm Street had become a parody of itself. In the 1990s, horror started shifting from the grotesque and gratuitous latex and the half-naked co-eds that defined the 80s. As in previous decades, the horror genre borrowed extensively from contemporary fears. One of the big fears was the approaching end of the millennium. Movies such as The Seventh Seal and In the Mouth of Madness took biblical apocalypse to a horror level. Thankfully, Arnold Schwarzenegger was there to save humanity with his 1999 film End of Days. I mentioned before that big blockbuster films and their sequels were becoming tiresome 
and a parody of what they used to be. So at this time, Wes Craven went on to reinvent that very franchise he first began in the 80s. In A New Nightmare, Freddy Krueger is reinvented as a fictional movie monster who invades the real world and haunts the cast and crew involved in the making of the movies about him. The movie included real-life people involved in the movie industry, including actress Heather Langenkamp, who played the sole surviving victim of the original Nightmare on Elm Street. So successful was this meta-reimagining of a failing franchise that Craven was inspired to follow it up with another new franchise. In 1996, Scream, a black comedy which satirized the cliches of horror movies of the past, was released in theaters to rave reviews by fans and critics. It was so successful that this movie is credited with reviving the horror genre in the 1990s. The classic movie monsters made a quick comeback too during this time. This time, however, vampires were a substitution for the AIDS crisis. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula and Neil Jordan's interview with the vampire restructure the vampire as infected monsters grappling with an existential existence. A notable horror film that usually gets overlooked during this period is the sci-fi horror film Event Horizon, which has been considered a classic haunted house story set on a spaceship. The film offers disturbing images and a deep religious iconography, giving it a gothic feel. We then enter the new millennium, safe and sound from the end of the world predictions and Y2K, with a resurgence of supernatural horror and a new trend, found footage horror, which began in 1999 with the Blair Witch Project and continued with the Paranormal Activity franchise along with a countless string of copycat, low-budget, sometimes direct-to-video titles. But a seismic shift in the genre is credited with the events of 9-11 in 2001. The events of that day changed global understanding of what it is to be afraid and set the cultural agenda for the following years. The 2000 horror movies reflected this new cruelty. Torture porn made its debut at this time with reports of torture and cruelty experienced by detainees at the hands of U.S. Army personnel. Beheadings were prominently on display on the internet, and the film industry was banking on the public's curiosity. One director to emerge from this subgenre was Eli Roth with the 2005 movie Hostel. But in 2007, the movie Cavity caused a mini moral panic with their marketing campaign. The posters were a series of captions that read, Abduction, Confinement, Torture, Termination. The movie studio was forced to apologize for this marketing campaign, and the movie eventually flopped. At this time, a brief reboot craze dominated the movie scene with a remake of older classics that capitalized on nostalgia. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes, and Halloween all received a glossy reboot for a new generation. By the 2010s, big studio low-budget films were the new norm. James Wan's Insidious and The Conjuring were box office hits, but by 2014, a wave of independent filmmakers began to appear. Under the Skin, The Babadook, It Follows, and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night all led a charge of horror filmmakers bored with the predictive reboots and franchises. A new golden age of horror was announced. More notably, women and people of color were at the helm of this genre's successes. Of course, Jordan Peele had become the go-to name for changing how horror is perceived. As we approach 2020, 
horror is taking on a new subgenre with what is being called elevated horror. This new horror is viewed as more intelligent than slashers or franchises. An example of these films include Ari Aster's Hereditary and Midsummer, and Robert Eggers' The Witch. Finally, as we start a new decade, it's exciting to see what this genre has to offer, what with horror becoming more inclusive and even more inventive and original than the previous decades. In particular, I'm hoping that more women and people of color will continue to produce high-quality horror without compromising their artistic visions. So, part two to Mexican horror films. So, again, I will be discussing some notable directors and their films. But first, I want to kind of give our listeners some worldwide or world context before I begin, because I feel that you will find how political and societal events help and shape any artist in pretty much any medium. So... This is the late 60s going into the 70s. It seems like 1968 was a really big year for worldwide political turmoil. In the United States, we were ending the end of the civil rights movement with the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and riots. Black America was dealing and coping with that trauma. In Vietnam, there was the start of the campaign surprise attacks against military and civilian command and control centers in South Vietnam, which was known as the Tet Offensive. In France, they were having a movement of student demonstrations and worker strikes that toppled the government of Charles de Gaulle. The Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia, which crushed a popular uprising, and in Mexico. On October 2nd, 1968, Mexico experienced a forever changing national tragedy. Between 5,000 to 10,000 students staged a demonstration in the Plaza de las Tres Culturas. Police, army, and paramilitary forces opened fire on protesters. They were being shot and bayoneted and murdered along with numerous residents of the neighborhood. The Mexican government reported that only a dozen people were killed. Then their official number was adjusted to 32. But independent sources and historical accounts place it closer to about 325 plus, with over a thousand people being hurt to some capacity. The Mexican government had invested about 150 million in preparation for the Mexico City Olympics, which started on October 12, 1968. The rising social tensions arose because of the government-suppressed movement directed towards the economy that was affecting independent laborers, farmers, and they were basically fighting for their lot. Because of this tragedy, exploitation films came to an end, and these next artists paved the way for horror films to have more of a real political and social commentary scare factor within their films. So I want to read a paragraph before I lead into our artist. This is a, from Doyle Green's book titled, the Mexican Cinema of Darkness, a critical study of landmark horror and exploitation films from 1968 through 1988. If the Plaza de las Tres Culturas presented a political, moral, and psychological crisis for the Mexican national psyche, this crisis of the modern world as a whole after 1968 was graphically expressed in the work of Shorodowski, Lopez Moctezuma, and the younger René Cordona. These films denied the distinction between art and trash, between morality and transgression, between modernity and barbarism. The films not only served as a bloody announcement that times had changed, but Mexican cinema had indeed changed its means to confront the times. They represent brutal studies of a modern world in disarray. 
So, Alejandro Jorodowski is a Chilean-born filmmaker who lived in Mexico. He attended the University of Santiago, where he focused on psychology, philosophy, and theology. He would leave college to have a career in the performing arts, where he worked as a puppeteer, circus clown, dancer, stage actor, and a director of his own theatrical troupe. He traveled to Paris and studied mime, and was a production assistant to Marcel Marceau. He made his first experimental short film that was adapted by Thomas Mann's The Transposed Head. Some of the themes in that novella include sensuality, metaphysics, entangled identities, the problems of love and individuality, and also introduced the femme fatale archetype. In 1959, he moved to Mexico, where he became a force in avant-garde theater. He directed over 100 plays from Beckett, Eugene Ionesco, and Joseph Strindberg. He worked with controversial playwright Fernando Arabal and the Theater of the Absurd and Theater of Cruelty, which was intended to batter, bewilder, and offend viewers with images of sex and violence and pretty much demolishing the, con- the conventions of uh, Western theater. So his most famous or infamous films include 1967's Fanda y Lis, El Topo in 1969, This movie was one of the most famous films to emerge from Mexico with its surreal, strange, and shocking event-related allegorical and symbolic narrative that strayed away from a coherent negative. And El Topo in 1969, this is one of the most famous films to emerge from Mexico. There is actually a book called El Topo, a book of the film, if if you really are interested in knowing more about this film. Then in 1972, we go to La Montaña Sagrada, and in 1988, Santa Sangre. There again, there's a really good review by Roger Ebert about this film. So there's also there's also a documentary on Prime about Jorodowski, and uh, we could, we'll probably put a link on our episode notes. Up next, we have Juan Lopez Moctezuma. He was an actor born in Mexico City in 1929. In his career, he only directed five films, all in the genre of supernatural horror and suspense. He is known as the father of the Gothic film. As a producer, his most recognized works are the first films of Alejandro Jorodowski, Fando and Lis and El Topo. He was also the host of the program Tela de Trial in Spain, where he conducted interviews with acclaimed directors such as Roman Polanski. But due to his eccentricities in his work methods, he was fired from Televisa. With this firing and his divorce led him to isolate himself in a small rooftop apartment in L.A., Years later, he was admitted by his relatives to a psychiatric hospital in Mexico City due to Alzheimer's disease. It is noted that Roman Polanski and Guillermo del Toro are heavily influenced by him. His most notable films are La Mansión de la Locura in 1972, Mary Mary Bloody Mary in 1974, and Alucarda in 1978 or 77, one of those years, and Matar a un Extraño in 1983, And finally, his last film, El Alimento del Miedo, in 1994. This was his last film that he directed, but he never saw it because it came out the following year. Gilberto Martinez Solares was a photographer, screenwriter, director, and producer. He established four photography studios, two in Mexico City and one in Hollywood and one in Paris. In 1934, he returned to Mexico and made his debut as a photographer in the film Adios Nicanor in 1935. In 1938, he made his directorial debut with El Señor Alcalde in 1939. He was awarded several awards throughout his career, one of them at the Festival of the Three Continents in Nantes, France, in which, years later, an award for new directors named after him was established. 
He worked with many actors such as Germán Valdez, Adalberto Martínez, Antonio Espino, Marco Antonio Campos, Gaspar Enanin, Joaquín Pardave, and Maria Elena Velasco, also known as La India Maria. His films include La Casa del Terror, which is a Mexican monster movie starring Lon Chaney and the comedian Tintan. His next film was Santo y Blue Demon contra los Monstruos in 1970, and his cult hit Satanico Pandemico in 1973 is a Mexican cult film and it shows non-exploitation. A little bit more about that a little bit later. Uh, so this film was actually shot in a couple of convents in Mexico and it was also inspired by Ken Russell's The Devils, um, such as Alucarda was also inspired by that film. And the film inspired Selma Hayek's character satanico pandemonium in from dusk till dawn so alucarda and this film have similar themes another director rene cardona he began his acting career in his father's films and then took over his father's craft in the mid-1960s directing writing and producing over 100 films over the years he enjoyed some notoriety and success particularly in the 70s as a result of his Jaws-inspired film Tin Toreria in 1977, which became a cult classic. He capitalized on the spirit of cooperation between the Mexican, Spanish, and Italian film industries prevalent in the 1970s, and he was able to make large-budget exploitation films with professional international casts and crews. He also managed to hire several once-popular American actors during this period, such as Joseph Cotton, John Huston, Gene Barry, Stuart Whitman, John Ireland, Arthur Kennedy, and Lionel Stander to help boost international ticket sales. Most of these actors were fresh from similar guest appearances in Italian films of that same period. From 1962 through 1968, he would make numerous films with Las Luchadoras. These films added to the exploitation canon. These films featured women wrestlers. Some of these titles are Las Luchadoras versus El Medico Asesino, Las Luchadoras versus La Momia, Las Mujeres Panteras, and El Horripilante Bestia Humana. This brief period of international success waned in the 1980s, and he went back to Spanish-language Mexican B-films for the next few decades up to his death. He dabbled in a variety of genres, touching everything from disaster films such as Survive in 1976 and Cyclone in 1978, Two horror films, Night of a Thousand Cats in 1972, a sci-fi film, The Bermuda Triangle in 1978, and a sensational drama of the historic events of the Jonestown Massacre. And the name of that film is called Guayana, Crime of the Century in 1979. Cardona was particularly infamous for his predilection for cruelty towards animals while filming. A live shark was killed during the filming of Tintoreria, a cat was thrown over a wall in Night of a Thousand Cats, and live birds were thrown through windows to film the attack scene in Ataques de los Pájaros, or Beaks, the movie, in 1987. And this brings us to our most current wave of film directors. First off, Guillermo del Toro. He was born in Guadalajara, Jalisco. I'm not going to talk too much about him because I'm pretty sure we all know about him. What I am going to say about him is he made 10 short films before his first feature film, including one titled Matilde, but only the last two, Doña Lupe and Geometria, are actually available. As we know, he also studied special effects and is a huge makeup and special effects artist. 
his three movies that pretty much put him on the map. Cronos in 1993, El Espinazo del Diablo in 2001, and one of my favorites, El Labriento del Fauno in 2006. We have Jorge Michel Grau and Isaac Esban. Those are two other Mexican filmmakers. So I was ready to pretty much throw all of this, what I just read to you guys. Um, and I was going to close my computer and uh, a name popped up. It made me really, really happy because this is a Mexican-Canadian filmmaker. She, that's right, she is named Gigi Saul Guerrero. I'm going to repeat that again. Gigi Saul Guerrero. We have a Mexican-Canadian filmmaker, horror filmmaker, which was really exciting to me because this genre or these films are usually directed by men. And the fact that she's a woman of color just may... I, I just wanted to know... I just wanted to know more about her. So <clears throat> I'm going to break down a little bit of some, of some of her work. She gained recognition for creating and directing the 2017 horror web series La Quinceañera. In 2019, she directed episodes of the anthology horror series Into the Dark and The Purge. Guerrero has been praised as one of the top emerging directors in the horror genre by Empire, Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, and Creators Co., and Variety described her as part of the new wave of Latinx talent. Guerrero was born in Mexico City in Mexico. She immigrated to Vancouver, British Columbia at the age of 13 and graduated with honors with a BA in motion picture production from Capilano University. A little trivia, as a child, she stole a VHS of Child's Play from Blockbuster, but she was too scared to finish watching it. I thought that was kind of funny. I don't know. In 2014, she participated in the anthology series Mexico Barbaro. She also co-founded the production company Luchagor Productions along with Bramley, Chang, and producer Rainer Shima in 2013. Her segment, Dia de los Muertos, premiered at the 2014 Etheria Film Night. After the viewing of Dia de los Muertos, author Shane McKenzie approached Luchagor with adapting his novel Muerte con Carne. A development executive at Warner Brothers contacted Guerrero upon viewing one of her films, El Gigante, which led to Luchagor pitching several ideas, one of which became La Quinceañera. Two of her short films, Slam and Testament, created as entries in film competitions, Dead on Film and Frank Film Fest, respectively. Yeah, so look, look this filmmaker up. Some of her projects sound really interesting. She's got something coming out in... Oh, wait, we're already in... Wait, it's already 2020, huh? <laughs> Hold on. I'm really, really excited that there is a woman and a Latina representing the horror film genre. So another thing to note about her is Guerrero is inspired by horror that is new and unique and believes that story is the most important element to a movie. She uses humor to ease tension. Her self-described style is, and I quote, gritty gory with a Tex-Mex feel. She cites seeing a re-release of the director's cut of The Exorcist, which is one of my favorite movies, in theaters when she was nine as having an influence on her. She also counts among her inspirations, the three amigos of cinema, Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Juarón, and Alejandro G. Iñárritu. In addition, Robert Rodriguez, Rob Zombie, and Quentin Tarantino are also inspirations. That was a lot of information we covered today. I know. I hope y'all were able to keep like keep up and understand the info. 
Yeah, I want to stress to everyone that we both did our research independently this week. We weren't cross-referencing what we were finding out until today when we recorded. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that we both stressed or really highlighted the fact that we discovered women directors of color. Right. How here in America, they're becoming very prominent in the industry. And you actually named one that is actually doing a lot of great work and is getting recognized for that. So I'm specifically in that genre. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. I can't wait to see what the new decade has in store for artists of color here in, in America and in other countries around the world. Yeah, and I think the research that we found uh, kind of was pretty cohesive. Like there were certain elements that you brought up that I was able to counteract with what was happening in Mexican cinema or Mexican horror film. So I kind of found that interesting. And there was a lot, there were a lot of crossover too, especially with like uh, horror actors doing Mexican films and some of the early Mexican film directors kind of worked in the US and then went back to Mexico. So, you know, there was just a lot of parallels. So there was a brief resurgence in the movie monsters that you spoke about. Classic movie monsters? Yeah, but the one that I didn't hear you mention were uh, werewolf movies. Yeah, there was just a lot. I mean, I, I mentioned the vampires. Right. But you're right. Uh, werewolf movies that I didn't mention was a remake of The Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Starring With Benicio, Benicio Del Toro. Benicio Del Toro. And also Wolf. Yeah, remember Michelle Wolf? Pfeiffer and Michelle Jack Nicholson. Pfeiffer and Jack Nicholson. Which I kind of like that. Oh, and James Spader, I think, was also in it. I like that movie. So yeah, these classics, I mean, they're classics for a reason. They yeah. always keep coming back in new forms. Did you mention Frankenstein with I almost did, but I didn't. But you're right. Uh, with Robert Fran- De Niro. Francis Ford Coppola did all that remake of Dracula. And there was also a remake of Frankenstein. It was called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein starring Robert De Niro. Yeah. In the 90s. Yeah, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Yes. Another thing I wanted to mention was that at the beginning, I said that I was going to not mention the big the big guns of horror, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. But as I was doing my research, I found that these movies were really hard to ignore, which is why they're so iconic and definitive to the genre. So they, they're so anchored in horror that I had no choice but to include them. And I didn't realize that even after their franchise was kind of dwindling, they still keep persisting and they still keep coming back. And I believe they're redoing some more Friday the 13th coming up later next year, I believe. I don't think it was Friday the 13th. No, actually, it's Halloween. Yeah, I think Halloween is coming getting, back Yeah, it's coming again. back. So, so, I mean, you know, these franchises... Is it Rob are, Zombie? I'm not sure. Hmm. But I just like check that out. just like their monsters that we think they're dead at the end... That franchise, dead as it may be, keeps coming back. All right. Well, I think that's enough of that. Let's get into our film recommendations. This is Vico's and Obi's Top 10 10 Film film Recommendations. recommendations. Number one, Satanico Pandemonium. A young nun is tempted by visions of forbidden sexual fantasies to cross over to Satan. Ooh, our favorite thing. What, Satan? Sexual fantasies. Ooh. This film is also directed by Gilberto Martinez Solares and is part of the nunsploitation genre. Nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Number two. La Mansión 
de locura. This film was directed by Juan Lopez Montezuma in his first directorial debut. He intertwined his love of classic horror influences from Alejandro Jodorowsky's Take No Prisoner style, creating a surrealist nightmare of mental patients running amok. Twelve monkeys meets one, one floor over the cuckoo's, cuckoo's nest. nest. Twinsies. <laughs> Three, Veneno para las hadas. This film was the last film directed by Carlos Enrique Taboada, a Mexican cult film, though initially resembling a lighthearted made-for-television movie about the friendship between two little girls, it quickly turns into a dark thriller of witchcraft and terror. I may be crazy, but for some reason I get heavenly creatures in my mind with this movie. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like Without that. Without the lesbianism? Yeah. Yay, lesbians. Four. Santa Sangre. This one is written and directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky. It tells the story of Phoenix, a boy who grew up in a circus. Roger Ebert said, Horror, poetry, surrealism, psychological pain, and wicked humor all at once. And y'all know if Roger Ebert likes it, you should like it too. You should actually look up Roger Ebert and this film, Santa Sangre, and read the, the review. It's pretty cool. Number five, La Tia Alejandra. Witchy Aunt Alejandra moves in with her nephew's ordinary family and promptly sets about introducing the kitties to the dark arts. Then one by one, anyone who crosses her dies. The shockingly subversive psychodrama from Buñuel protege Arturo Ripstein is laced with lurid touches, heightened giallo-style atmosphere, black magic rituals, and... An astoundingly perverse climax. Ooh, we got to watch that. Ooh, perverse. And I have to check. I'm going to have to look this up. What's up with all these Mexicans and their tias in these horror movies? Girl, you know fucking tias are crazy. Six. Guyana. Crime of the century. This is a 1979 Mexican-American exploitation docudrama film. Written, written and directed by René Cardona. The film was shot in Mexico, and it's actually based on the Jonestown Massacre. Ooh. Yeah, and it stars a number of American actors, such as Stuart Whitman, Gene Barry, and Joseph Cotton. The names of the central characters are slightly tweaked from the historical ones. So the film is set in Johnsontown rather than Jonestown. The cult leader is led by Reverend James Johnson rather than Reverend Jim Warren Jones. And the murdered congressman is Lee O'Brien rather than Leo Ryan. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. Because <laughs> massacre is funny, y'all. Seven. Kronos. Long before he became an Oscar-winning director, sexy daddy Guillermo del Toro made his debut with Kronos. What? He's a sexy bear. Um, okay. Establishing himself as a horror writer and filmmaker, reinventing the traditional vampire tale, Kronos examines the undying love and bond between a grandfather and granddaughter in spite of the horrors of vampire life. This movie's fucking awesome. It is cool. The poster to this movie is art, in my opinion. 8. Los Parecidos On the rainy night of October 2nd, 1968... Eight characters waiting on a remote bus station for a bus heading to Mexico City start experiencing a strange phenomenon. Wait, 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 wait. What? October 2nd? Yes. That sounds like an important date. 
It is. What happened? Funny you should say that. It was the Tlaloclo Massacre. <laughs> no, what? Tlaloclo. You know what? Fuck you. Tlaloclo. Tlaloclo. Yes. Okay, beautiful. Do uh, your people right. I know. Sorry, people. This film was influenced by The Twilight Zone. Like the show, the director said he wanted to make a thriller that focused primarily on the characters. The director's name is Isaac Esvan. Nine. Tigers are not afraid. So this movie was directed by a woman director and writer by the name of Isa Lopez. A dark fairy tale about a gang of five children trying to survive the horrific violence of the cartels and the ghosts created every day by the drug war. Kids took drugs and Tigger came to life. 10. Mexico Barbaro. Eight Mexican directors unite to bring tales of the most brutally terrifying Mexican traditions and legends to vividly shocking life. You know, this is a really gory graphic anthology. Check it out. Yeah. One of the segments was written by another female director and writer by the name of Gigi Saul Guerrero. You love her, don't you? She's fucking pretty awesome. She is. I'm actually following her on Instagram. Is she a chingona? She looks pretty badass directing. Nice. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And uh, there's another segment uh, directed by Isaac Esban. So that brings us to our 10. We have a bonus film. Ooh, bonus. And yeah, this one, you can actually uh, watch it on Hulu. It's part of the uh, Hulu original films. And it's called Culture Shock. Who is the director? Who do you think? Pendejo. The G the director is Gigi Saul Guerrero. And this movie is about a young Mexican woman crosses into the United States, hoping to find her American dream, but quickly finds herself in an American nightmare. We've all been there before. We're all in it now. I know, right? So that concludes our list of recommendations. Hey! You can find all of these for rent or to buy. And if you go to our episode notes, you can click on them. And by doing so, you are helping us out too. Yeah. So everybody wins. You get a movie. I get a movie. You get a movie. So now with this list from this week and the list from last week, you got plenty of movies to watch this Halloween season. That's 22 new movies by Mexican film directors. Check them out now. Ahorita. Go. We're waiting. Okay, bye. Bye. You have been listening to Those Two Mexicans. Don't be that person and miss any of our episodes. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts at Those Two Mexicans. And follow us on Spotify, Instagram, and Twitter at Those Two Mexicans. And you can also email us at Those Two Mexicans at gmail.com. And in case we haven't been clear, we are. Those two Mexicans. See you next week. Hasta la próxima.